Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for coming. I'll remind those of you coming in, there are some seats still, some comfortable seats in the front. The, the orange seats are very comfortable. The, uh, the concrete is less so. Uh, I'm Jose Antonio Bowen, the president of Goucher College. Uh, welcome. Thank you for coming tonight. I'd like to welcome you to tonight's uh, discussion with Omid Safi, the editor of Progressive Muslims on Justice, Gender, and Pluralism, and the director of the Duke Islamic Studies Center. I want to start by thanking uh, Mr. Robert Meyerhoff, who has funded uh, the Jane and Robert Meyerhoff Visiting Professorship uh, for many years. It brings distinguished scholars, teachers, and practitioners like Professor Safi to Goucher's campus to advance local and national dialogues on pressing issues of our time. We're very, very grateful to Mr. Meyerhoff for his support of Goucher College and this particular series. He's not here this evening, I don't think, uh, but please, let's thank him anyway. Thank you to Robert Meyerhoff. Also, thank you to all of the faculty and staff and students uh, who worked on this event, uh, and in fact, on this series. This is part of a themed semester. This is our second year doing this, and this year, in spring 2016, um, our theme is the science, ethics, and practice of mindfulness. So last week, uh, we had Mary Helen Amordino Yang from UCLA uh, showing us pictures of, of her brain scans demonstrating uh, that um, those advocating contemplative practice for the last few thousand years were right. <laughs> that in fact, biologically, we don't develop a social conscience, um, we don't become uh, as compassionate, we don't develop awe if we don't have downtime, if we don't have time away from tasks. And so she showed us how modern biology is, is discovering this. If you come back next month, um, we will have Alicia Garza, social activist and co-creator of the Black Lives Matter hashtag that has become the banner for this generation's civil rights movements. Then in April, we'll have best-selling author Dan Siegel from the UCLA School of Medicine, um, who'll offer an overview of how mindfulness can be incorporated into everyday life and work. There are tickets still available um, for all of those events. After Professor Safi is finished speaking this evening, there'll be a brief Q&A. Um, as always, I ask you to give our students first priority in asking questions. And students, I ask you to ask questions, clearly and succinctly. Now, a few words about tonight's speaker. Professor Omid Safi is the director of Duke, Duke University's Islamic Studies Center. He's the past chair for the study of Islam and the current chair for Islamic Mysticism Group at the American Academy of Religion. Professor Safi is the editor of the volume Progressive Muslims on, gender, on Justice, Gender, and Pluralism, which offers an understanding of Islam rooted in social justice, gender equality, and religious and ethnic pluralism. His last book, Memories of Muhammad, deals with the biography and legacy of the Prophet Muhammad, and he has forthcoming volumes on the famed mystic poet Rumi, contemporary um, Islamic debates in Iran, and American Islam. And we'll have one of those books um, here this evening that you can purchase and get him to sign afterwards. 
He writes a weekly column for Krista Tippett's On Being website and has been, been among the most free, frequent sought speakers on Islam and popular media, media, appearing in the New York Times, Newsweek, The Washington Post, PBS, NPR, NBC, and CNN, etc. After you hear him tonight, uh, you will understand why. We're very, very pleased uh, to welcome this old soul to Goucher College um, for the first but not the last time, I hope. Please welcome Omid Safi. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. <clears throat> Hello. Thank you all for being here. Whether you came willingly or whether you were nudged, encouraged, begged, pleaded, shoved, told that you had no choice, you are here. Let us be together. I have this way of trying to start as many of my talks as my consciousness, my awareness allows me to do, which is to thank you for the gift of your time. I am 45 and a half years old. My daughter, who is one of the great loves of my life, celebrates every quarter anniversary and half anniversary with a joy, and right now she's eight and a half, which is definitely not eight. Right? She's older, she's bigger, she's wiser, and of course she's more beautiful. So I'm 45 and a half, and to be described as an old soul at this point of my life is really something that touches me because we live in a culture that worships youth and photoshops 22-year-old supermodels and treats the elderly as disposable. We want to begin our conversation with an awareness that your time, my time, our time is precious, and it is absolutely finite. One of the great teachings of the Islamic tradition is this recognition that you can find in almost every religious tradition, that the number of breaths that we get to take in our life is limited. That it is, in fact, written in the great book of life, and that no power on earth can add or subtract from it. So whenever we have a chance to have a conversation for 50 minutes, I come to this gathering with an ethical commitment. And that ethical commitment is simply this, that we leave this time together more aware of the ways in which our lives are already interdependent. You and I are connected. What it means to be human is to be linked up with every human soul and every sentient being around this one little tiny third rock from the sun 
which in all the infinite galaxies seems to be the one place so far that we as a human species can call home. I want to make sure that by the time that we leave this gathering, we are more aware of our connections, and with the grace of God, we are kinder and gentler towards each other. That's my ethical commitment. It's the reason I've taken tonight away from my babies. And they're a lot cuter than you. <laughs> the topic that I've been asked to speak about, this disease of busyness, is something that I see all the way around me. It's a disease that doesn't seem to know nationality, though it runs quite rampant in this part of the world. It doesn't particularly seem to know an age group. I got four beautiful babies, the youngest one eight and a half, and a half, and the oldest one 22. And when I go to schedule play dates, for my kids, their parents pull out a special calendar and they tell me these horrific things like, Stacy has an opening for 45 minutes 10 days from now. In between her piano and gymnastics and voice lessons and after school tutoring, we could, we could fit you in. If you could drop off and pick, we could do 45 minutes 10 days from now. And my first response is, whatever happened to childhood where your kids get muddy, where you bury your watches, where you walk barefoot, where kids can even be allowed to get bored. When you can use what SpongeBob all my references, by the way, are to cartoons. Don't expect any references to like postmodern theologian, philosopher, whatever, because my world is like the world of Nickelodeon. That's what I inhabit. So, you know, it's, uh, kids should be allowed to use what SpongeBob, that great American philosopher, calls <laughs> your imagination, right? And to use your imagination, you need to get bored a little bit. You need to have that opening that can be filled by the fantastic outpouring of your soul. We don't live in that world right now. And we live instead in this other world, not a world that God has created, but a world that we create each and every single day and this is the world that I've called being riddled by the disease of busyness. It has causes, it has symptoms, and I pray to God that it has solutions, though I'm not selling some kind of a magic five-step program, right? That if you buy now, you can get a second one for $9.99, plus shipping and handling. Call 1-900-BUSINESS-BE-GONE. 1-900-BUSINESS-BE-GONE. I, I, I don't know how to solve this. If I did, I would start with my own life. I've got some inklings 
of a solution, but I haven't figured it out yet. Here's what this disease looks like. When I go and I run into my friends, people that I care about, I come from an ancient tradition, the world of Persian culture, deeply rooted and grounded Islamic culture, where to ask someone, how are you doing? You actually ask them, literally, how is that transient state of your heart? How is your heart doing right now? That's how we ask each other how you're doing. Right? It's the same, by the way, in a number of other Islamic languages. Right? In Arabic, how is your hal? How is your state of your heart? That's what it means to find out how you and I are doing in this very breath. Understanding that it will change. And it will change one breath from now and five minutes from now. And people could tell you, my heart feels tight. Praise be to God. Alhamdulillah. My heart feels expanded. Praise be to God. I'm having a shitty day. Praise be to God. Right? Without sarcasm. Like, there's no snark. Like, I'm alive, I'm breathing, alhamdulillah, praise be to God. But today, this breath, this is a hard one. I'm hurting right now. Praise be to God. Nowadays, here's what I find, is I stop my colleagues as they're walking past me in the hallway, and I try to look at them in the eye and ask them. If I ask them, how is your heart right now, they look at me funny, they're like, damn it, I know we shouldn't have hired that weird Iranian guy. <laughs> we had a white guy. We had a white guy. We could have hired the white guy. The white guy would have just said, what's up? Right, you know? But no, this Iranian guy always wants to look at us deep and meaningful connections. And he wants to know, how is your heart doing right now? I'm so uncomfortable with him. Um, whatever. So what I get from my friends is this ritual that I see repeated dozens of times every day. And here's what I hear back. I'm just so busy, I'm so busy. And there's this head nod that I see around me from students, from my coworkers, from people younger, older, male, female. I'm just so busy, I'm so busy. I've got so much to do. To which I want to say, one, I am so sorry because you look utterly miserable. I wish I could actually carry a mirror for you so that you could see how your beautiful soul is beaten down by everything that is crushing you at the moment. But I also want you to understand that you told me nothing about the state of your heart. What you did 
is that you told me how many things you have to do, which is different than how your heart is doing at the moment. How do we change our social dynamic so that instead of sharing with each other our to-do list, we actually pause long enough every day to let each other know what it is that our heart is experiencing in that breath. Joy, sadness, exhaustion, yearning, being lost in this breath. What would it be like to learn to communicate our truth in that very moment with one another? If we're going to learn to have this kind of a conversation, it's going to also require us to be perpetually mindful of what is going through our own hearts. To examine all of the different emotions and sensations that pass through us without necessarily fully identifying with them. Right? Here's the most superficial version of it. You walk out of a restaurant and you're gonna walk to your car with a group of friends and one of you says, I'm over there. To which you wanna say, no you're not. You are right here. Your car is parked over there. You are not your car. To which your friend says, I know we should have hired the white guy, right? <laughs> now, imagine having the same insight, the same perspective, when it comes to the emotions and the sensations that pass through you, right? This is what the phenomenally fantastic Persian poet Rumi talks about in comparing your heart to a guest house. He has a beautiful poem, the caravanserai, the guest house, the hotel, or as my eight and a half year old daughter, born and raised in the South, calls it, the hotel. <laughs> hotel. What would it be like if instead of saying, I am happy, I am sad, I am angry, I am joyous. If we were actually able to perceive our own heart and soul as that guest house and to say, the emotions that come through me, the sensations that come through me, I'm going to treat them like beloved guests. I'm not gonna fight my emotions. I'm gonna welcome each and every single one of you like a tender, dear, old friend. Instead of saying, I am sad, I am happy, what would it be like if I were able to say, ah, hello, joy. You are a dear friend whom I adore. You have been with me so often in my life. 
and I've learned that you also depart. I'm so grateful for you being here in my guest house now. Let me welcome you. And when it's time to go, I will bid you farewell. Could I be equally gracious when sadness comes? Sadness, my dear, darling friend, you have been so faithful. You have come in every year of my life. We know each other well. I know sometimes you linger for a long, long time. But I've also seen you go. You know your way around my heart. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to struggle against you. And I'm not going to declare jihad on you. Come, my friend, be at home, and I know that you will leave. I am not you, but you are not other than me. Right? That takes work. That takes reflection. That takes listening to the best of the Greek philosophical tradition telling us the unexamined life is not worth living for the human. Plato's Apology 38a. How do we live that examined life in a world which seems to be shrinking that space for introspection out? If we're always doing things, if we're always busy, 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 if we have confused our busyness with productivity, with worth, when and where is the time to reflect on what it means to be fully human, truly human? You shouldn't have to go to Goucher to figure these things out. It helps. How do we think about education? Not just as the pathway to future employment. Look, I get it. I'm still paying my undergraduate college student loans. And I am how old? 45 and a frickin' half years old. <laughs> I have not been in college for 24 blessed years. I'm a full frickin' professor with an endowed chair, and I'm still paying my undergraduate loans and my graduate loans. I understand. What we mean by education has changed. Liberal arts has changed. I was so delighted to hear your president say so eloquently that what you're trying to do is to reimagine what liberal arts look like in the 21st century. So much of our collegiate university instruction was the model of 19th century German and British independently wealthy gentlemen 
who could lock themselves up in a tower and reflect. We're not all gentlemen. We sure as heck are not all German and British. Not that there's anything wrong with being German and British and independently wealthy and a white male. <laughs> as long as you check your privilege and you work to dismantle the systems of unearned privilege. Because there's no checking your privilege without also dismantling the systems, right? We have to figure out what does it mean to be a reflective and aware human being today. Today. We get it. We want you to have jobs. We would like for you not to live in poverty. We don't have to apologize for that. But you know what we also should be bigger than? Well, we should be better than? We should be bigger than saying, you study religion and philosophy because employers are looking for well-rounded candidates. No. You study religion and philosophy and literature and music, the arts, and the sciences, and econ, and public policy, because we care about what it means to be human. Because we recognize that what's at the center of the humanities are the question about what it has meant, what it means, and what it should mean to live a truly human existence. And Socrates and Plato have something to offer us that the Bible and the Quran, Rumi and Augustine, jazz and Beethoven and Qawwali music have something to teach us. That Nina Simone has something to teach us. Not sure if Kanye has anything to teach us, but that's a separate conversation, aside from an outsized ego. But that's a separate conversation. Maybe I need to give the brother a little bit more chance. I like to watch my students. I like to watch young folk. A, because y'all are pretty, and B, because you give me hope. You are smarter, not better, not yet. You may become better, but you're not there yet. You're smarter, you're more interconnected, and while having a profound sense of cynicism about authority and good on you, because when I look at what the systems of authority above you look like, more power to you. Never abdicate that cynical skepticism about accepting the truth claims from the market, the nation, the church, the media that are around you. But you're interconnected. And your generation is one of the first ones that I've seen in human history that is concerned about the welfare of your fellow human beings, whether it's down the street in inner cities of Baltimore, and we all know what happened there, what is happening there, what happens in every American inner city whether it is about the remnants of the Arab Spring, 
or concern about what will happen if the sea levels rise another four feet? What will happen to Bangladesh? Your generation actually gives a damn about the welfare and well-being of fellow human beings that you're not connected to racially, nationally, religiously. Do you realize how awesome that is? To recognize that what it means to be human for you is linked up with what it means to be human for people halfway around the world. But I also worry about your generation. And I don't worry like, you know, the way that someone from your uncle generation would get to worry. Right? Back in my day, we knew how to respect authority. No, not, not that kind of a thing. Here's what I worry about you. Because when you walk into a space, when I walk into a library or a coffee shop, I pay attention to where you all sit. No longer do you try to sit by the windows with the most beautiful scenery. No longer do you search for the nicest, most comfortable chair that perfectly conforms to the contours of your body. You look for the place that has the plug. You compete over who can stick their power cord and charge your devices. And you're not sure that you believe in God, but may God have mercy on you if the red light on your iPhone starts coming out. When you see that red light, like you see, like you start trembling, must recharge now. Like you go into this cosmic and existential crisis, this panic of, if my device runs out, then I will evaporate into the ether. <laughs> I will no longer exist in the imagination of my friends. Right? I have this very complicated relationship with technology. I'm on Facebook and Twitter hours every day. I use it for teaching, I use it for activism, I use it for public intellectual work. I'm not a hater. But I am trying to figure out how do we use our technology in ways that are efficacious and beautiful instead of being used by these devices. They're not neutral. They change our neurochemistry. They change our sense of what it means to connect with one another. They change when Facebook friends that we spend our time interacting with and liking and flirting. I like your post 10 seconds after you put it up. Haha, -ha, don't you know? That means I like you. Oh my god, you liked my post 10 seconds after I put it up. This is true Facebook love. I don't deny it because you know you stalk people left and right. You have gone through every picture that they've ever put up and you've asked yourself that question of how many of their pictures will you like before that person really starts getting creeped out. 
Yes. We're all there. Like, we're all in this hell together. Do you know as much about the person who lives next door to you? Because I don't, unless they're on Facebook. <laughs> I worry about what's happening to our sense of intimacy when we have got so many ways, technologies of communicating with one another, but so little to say when we are face to face, eye to eye. I have another daughter, not the eight and a half year old, but one who is 15 and a half, going on 25 and a half. She will rule the world someday. She will rule your world someday. Either as like the next Beyonce or the next dictatorial queen of the world, or possibly both. But she will rule your world someday. And I'm trying to make sure that she understands my beautiful Roya, the darling of my life, the boy who texts you the most often is not necessarily the human who loves you the most. Right now, that distinction is not necessarily clear to her. It needs to become at some point. Part of this process of becoming self-aware, of watching your own, our own guest house, is what would it feel like if we actually could pay as much attention to our own hearts and souls as we pay to the batteries of our cell phones? What would it mean if you and I actually knew ourselves well enough so that you could look inside yourself and say, I'm running on fumes. My red battery light is on. And here's the lovely part. Not only do I know that I'm running on empty, I know how to recharge myself. I've spent enough time examining the dark corners of my own soul that I know about the practices that when I do them, I do well. I get better, I get kinder, I get gentler. And it differs for each and every one of us, and it might even differ during the course of your life. I know for me what that is now. I go for a walk in the woods, I do better. I hold my babies close and I tell them for the five gazillionth time that I love them with every part of what makes me human and they look at me and they say, we know. <laughs> and then I say, then my life has purpose and meaning. Because I need to know that my babies are loved onto their bones. When I sit down and have a cup of tea with a dear friend, and we don't talk about celebrities, and we don't talk about what happened, what is on the news, we talk about 
who we are and who it is that we are aspiring to become, right? my battery gets charged. Every one of us has to know what practices charge our own inner battery. To figure that out takes introspection, examination of our own soul, and practice. I go for a walk. Did it help? I spend time with friends and loved ones. Does that help? Prayer. What a grand mystery that when you do the things that are good for your heart, you do well. I watch Fox News. I turn into a foaming at the mouth lunatic. All you have to do is to walk up behind me and just whisper, Donald Trump. <laughs> and like Mr. Divine Love, Erotic Love Poetry, Social Justice, turns into this foaming at the mouth. Oh, foul, fail, filth, foul. Register my Muslims and put us in concentration camps and detention camps and did you hear the latest one? Bullets dipped in pig's blood. Are you freaking kidding me? 2016. Not surprisingly, I do not become a kind. All of that is true, by the way. Right? I mean, it's a bizarre world. You don't even have to make up crap. Because people who are running for the highest office in the land keep lowering the bar. And when I get sucked into the world of their crazy, not surprisingly, I don't do better. I don't end up being capable of actually uplifting and transforming myself, much less the community around me. I would very, very much encourage you and encourage every one of us to think about the activities that nurture you, the activities that sustain you, and to do them, to come back to them again and again and again. I know that I fail at these every single day. A few months ago, that same eight-year-old, eight-and-a-half-year-old, came into the living room and I was sitting there on my laptop answering yet another email from someone that I've never met, right? Dear Professor Safi, I found you on YouTube. I found your comments very inspiring, and I have these 17 questions. <laughs> Why, yes, of course I will answer your 17 questions because I'm a dope. <laughs> and I care more about being liked by someone that I've never met than I do about making sure that my baby goes outside and gets muddy with me, right? So my beautiful Layla, this darling girl with the most exquisite dark brown almond-shaped Persian eyes that look like my father's, and beautiful long hair that comes down to the crack of her butt, that every time I see it, I think, now I understand why a thousand years ago our love poets 
wrote poems about hair like this because these are chains that every lover would wishes that they could be caught up in and never let go. Because she has my heart and I never want to be free from it. She came into the room, she saw me on my laptop and you have to visualize this girl, she doesn't walk. She skips this way and that way on one foot and another foot. She sings songs her way through life. And she calls me Baba, Baba Jan, Daddy Soul, right? My dear darling daddy. Baba Jan, I wanted to know if you could. Oh, you're busy. And she pivoted on her foot and walked out of the room. And I stood there like staring at this computer screen and realizing, what have I done? How many times has this beautiful tender child seen this? Surely this was not the first time that she's come skipping, dancing, gliding, wanting to have her daddy, and she knows in her bones how much she's loved. And time and time and time again, she's seen me put the welfare and the inquiry of someone that I've never met over and above and beyond hers. Right. Shut the laptop, like went running after her, picked her up, kissed her, I think, 17 times. Right. We went outside. And I wish I could tell you that ever since that day, that it's never happened again. Here's the messiness of real life. We keep failing. Success is not linear. If you are a great success story, you fail less frequently. Right, it's what Samuel Beckett once said, ever tried, ever failed. Tried again, failed again. Fail better. That's where we are. I get 300 email messages every single day. For the love of God, do not email me. That's what I write blogs for and books for. Go read them. Because probably what you want to ask is already in them, right? And then after you've read them, then email me. And because I'm a dope, I will write you back. But let me put my babies first. Let me put my students first. Let me be, as the great Muslim sages say, let me be, let my heart be, where my feet are. Here's one of the simple, direct advices of this profound Islamic tradition of a thousand years ago. Have your heart be where your feet are. Most of us don't actually live like that. Most of us are suspended between an imagined past 
and a future that has not arrived yet. We think back usually to something traumatic and painful that happened in the past. Mommy, why didn't you love me the way that I wanted to be loved? Why didn't you approve my choices? And we live in hope of the life to come and fear of what will happen. When you speak with most people about their vision of who they want to become, they start telling you about that life that they want to live and how rarely do you ever hear someone say, I'm living that life now. Today is where I want to be. This breath right now is what I've been waiting for. And then the next one, and then the next one. Especially when I talk with college audiences, and I'm gonna make a ginormous gender stereotype here. There is, I find, 22 years of teaching. Not every person falls into the stereotype. Okay. Enough legal footnotes and caveats. I find an enormous difference between the way that college-aged men and college-aged women can articulate their hopes and dreams. I ask most college men, what are you really into? Dude, I'm like on level 17 of this video game, and I've gotten 317 stars already, and like I get online with my buddies. I have a son who is one of them. He knows more about the avatars of his video game buddies than he knows about people in his classes. And I ask most college-age women, and they can tell you about the relationships that they're in, that they want to be in, their bodies, their hopes, their fears. But whether I'm asking men or women, there's a commonality. And the commonality is all of them say, I have two majors because one of them my parents made me and one of them I'm doing for myself. And if you're laughing uncomfortably, you know it's true. My parents made me major in econ, public policy, or something because they thought that I would get a job with it. But you know what I really love? 12th century Japanese literature. 13th century erotic Persian poetry. Classical music. Hip hop dancing. That's my passion. Where do you want to go in life? Where do you, what do you want to become? Well, you know, I want to graduate and then I want to get a job and I want to date very widely. And then I want to find Mr. and Mrs. Wright number one, number two, number three, and bingo, we've got a winner. And then we want to move into a 1,500-square-foot house and 2,400-square-foot, 3,800-square-foot house, kid number one, kid number two, kid number two and a half, uh, a station, no, not a station wagon, an SUV, um, white picket fence, and this. And then I want to retire, and then I want to travel all over the world, and these are the seven cities that I want to go to. What I find is half of the people that I speak with can't articulate their hopes and visions 
for the kind of human existence that they want to live. And for the other half, it's a human existence that is in the distant, distant future. What would it mean like to actually live to say, I'm not, I might be pre-med, I might be pre-law, I am not and I refuse to be pre-life. This here now is my life. And you know what? These are good years of my life. I can use my fingers. Good years. I can hug people. I can go for a walk. Good years. Maybe I'm still fortunate enough to have the people who loved me into this world still with me. Good years. I know that I am who I am because somebody loved me, somebody sacrificed for me. These are good years. I ask you, I beg of you, I plead of you not to postpone your living. To live a meaningful, purposeful life now, here and now. When you do that, and when you surround yourself with other people who have the similar commitment, you notice that something extraordinary happens. In the beginning, you start thinking about, who do I want to be with? Friendship, romantic, or that delicious combination and ambiguity there too. In the beginning, most of us start out thinking about, I need to be with somebody who is those are important. Don't settle. If someone is not kind, they do not deserve to be with you. The older I get, the more I realize how prominent kindness is as the key virtue of anyone that would deserve to be in your company. But at some point, as you do the work on your own self, and the other people around you do the work on their self, you stop asking the question on what qualities must the other person have, and instead you ask yourself the question, I'm capable of being many different people. I can be and I can become a kind, loving self. And I've got that inner asshole in me that is just this far under the surface. Which friendships, which relationships help me become that kinder person? Every single one of us can produce different notes. Who brings out a more beautiful symphony in you? I'm mindful of the time that I've been given, and I want to use that time wisely and just make 
a few other simple points and then open it up to your questions. I want to talk for a second about success and what success can mean and might mean. What would it mean if we do not define success in an individual manner? What would it mean if we don't define success as how many digits your income has, the zip code that you live in, but you define success as the extent to which you can be part of a beautiful communal existence. None of us want to be alone. I ban cell phones in my classes. You can bring them to class, but it better be in your backpack. No texting in my class, because I want your eyes. I'm jealous that way. I want that magic of mentorship to happen. I want that window to your soul. And you know what happens when the 50 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes or the three hour seminar is over? It's like heroin addicts fumbling with their phone because the tingling excitement. Who thought of me? Who loved me enough to text me and send me an emoji? <laughs> if they have to go to the bathroom, either they check their phones before going to the bathroom or don't check because it's kind of creepy and stalky, Next time you're in a public bathroom, pay, to, pay attention and see how many of the people in bathroom stalls are checking their cell phones. What is wrong with us? We crave human contact. We crave attention. And we've forgotten in many ways on how to give it to one another in a way that's meaningful and especially living in a rape culture, especially living in a culture which infantilizes, sexualizes women from an obscenely young age, what would it mean to actually cultivate an ethics of care, an ethics of compassion, where you work on being able to glance at each other with a look that is gentle and wanted, with a touch that doesn't possess, doesn't crave, but only brings comfort. What would it mean to be aware enough of our own bodily interactions, where the tongue, the glance, the ear, the touch, become a way of expressing our care, wanted attention with one another. 
Those are all parts of what I think of as living a successful life. How many of you sitting here now are Goucher students? Let me just see a show of hands. How many of you don't have a foggy clue about what you're going to do in life? Take a deep breath. You heard of this guy, Jesus, right? Him and Bernie Sanders, my two favorite socialist Jews of all time, right? Jesus didn't know that he wanted to become the Christ until he was 30 years old. You've heard of this guy, Muhammad? He didn't know he was going to be the prophet until he was 40 years old. You're not cooler than Jesus. You're not more luminous than Muhammad. If you're 18, 20, 22, 25, it's okay not to know what you want to do for a living. It's okay to change your mind. I changed my mind seven times about what I wanted to major in. It is not okay to be lazy and refuse to do the work on yourself to know what it means to be a real human being. That difficult, painstaking work is part of what we mean by living a successful existence. And I want to end by talking about a word that's a little scary for some of us, which is the word intimacy. And we need it, and we crave it. In many languages, the word human and the word intimacy are actually linked together. In Arabic and Persian, the word insan, the human being, and the word uns, intimacy, are said to come from the same root. We need to experience intimacy in order to live a truly human life. We crave intimacy, we need intimacy, and we are scared into the core of our being at actually finding it. Because that's what love does. It's the reason why in our poetic tradition they call love a fire. It will burn you and it will forever transform you. Who you were before love will no longer be what you have after you've experienced love. There's a simple exercise that I sometimes do with audiences, and I encourage you all to do it in order to protect Goucher College from any legal ramifications. You all have to agree, no touching. <laughs> Understood? No touching. Start on this side and two by two, no touching. 
turn to the person next to you, so two people there, this is not fair because you guys are, you know, two people there, two people here, look into the other person's eyes and try to figure out what color their eyes are. It's really fun if you don't really know the person next to you. Just try. So two, 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 and go. And if you're stuck at the end of the, um, the aisle, it's all right. All right, you giggling bunch of adolescents. Now let's figure out what colors did we hear? What color do we see? Brown, blue, hazel. Any funky colors? Chocolate brown. Now here's the fun part. Get a little closer. No touching? No touching. <laughs> Seriously. Like I'll put on my mat face. This is my mat face. And see if you can get close enough till you see something in their eyes that you didn't see before. There's a point to this, I swear. All right, let's come back together. <laughs> Who saw something in the other person's eye that you hadn't seen before? Raise your hand. What did you see? Yes. Okay. A distinct outline of the eye? Yep. Yes. Right. <laughs> Ma'am, you have a hole in your eye. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but all right. Okay, so some people have seen other features of the eye, other colors of the eye. Anybody saw something else? Yes. Happiness? Yes. What is it? Laughter and joy? You would have to still get closer to see something else. Yourself. How close I'm guessing you were sitting next to your daughter, right? How close did you have to get to actually see yourself reflected in her eye? 
six or eight inches, right? What was the dominant sound that we heard coming from you all? Giggling. And you want to see like uncomfortable giggling? Have two guys. Oh my God, I have never in traveling through 40 countries seen such a thing as straight American guys, especially white guys, who are so uncomfortable being that intimate with another man. If you got sports uniform on, it's all cool, bro. We can slap each other on the butt and we're a team. Take off the uniform, I am so uncomfortable. The thing about intimacy is that it is uncomfortable. You start out by noticing difference, the brown eyes, the hazel eyes, the blue eyes, the green eyes. You get closer and you start noticing more particularity. No two eyes are the same. And if you allow yourself to become even closer, at some point, your friend, your neighbor, your lover, your daughter, your son, your child, your parent, becomes a mirror for who you are. We're deathly afraid of being seen, and we cannot live without this intimacy. We crave it, we want it, we deserve it, we look for it from strangers, we look for it in all kinds of ways that are messed up, but the desire itself is lovely. It actually makes us human. And I'm gonna leave you with something a little more political. Make no mistake about this. If what we are speaking of here is love, is that desire for human connection, is that desire for intimacy, the one thing that I know in the 40 plus countries that I've traveled to is that everybody around this world loves their babies as we love ours. Everybody wants the same thing for their children. They want them to have dignity in their bones. They want them to have a roof over their head. They want them to have food in their bellies. And they want them to grow up marrying someone exactly like them. Nice Iranian girl, Greek boy, Indian girl, Jewish girl. And here's the radical part. At a place like this, you hear lots of reflections about what it means to be human, the role of intimacy and poetry and music and philosophy in what it means to be human. And you hear other people speak with you about burning social crises. You're gonna have the great fortune of hearing from one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement one of the great civil rights movements of our time. These two issues, 
what it means to be human and the quest for love and intimacy is actually part of the struggle for social justice. When you live a life that you are aware of your own desires to be and become truly human, you start paying attention to everybody else's right to live a life that is truly human, and you realize that I cannot be who I ought to be until and unless you be who you ought to be. That's the reason, and this is where I'm going to leave you with, when we speak about justice, all we mean by justice is love when it comes into the public space. The conversation about social justice is none other than the fact that every human being around the world has this yearning to be free, to live a meaningful life that is truly intimate and aware. And they love their babies as much as we love our babies. The minute that we stop thinking of justice and social justice simply as a matter of a fair and equitable distribution of resources. And instead, we start asking the question, how much did Freddie Gray's mother sacrifice for him? What is the daughter of Michael Brown going through today? What are the children of drone victims in Pakistan going through? What are the experiences of Palestinian families under occupation and Jewish families living with fear? The more that you and I can work together in bringing love back where it belongs, in the middle of our public square is the minute that we can start rebuilding this beloved community that is grounded and rooted in what it means to be human. Thank you for the gift of your time, for your attention, and for having been here uh, today. Thank you. That was wonderful. A very beautiful evening together, indeed. We'll take a few questions, thoughts, provocations. Raise your hand, I'll come to you. You can come down here if you want. There's a mic up here, too. There's a mic over there. All right.
Hello, my name's James. Um, and you talked about your heart being a hotel of sorts. So with that, does that mean that you're trying to say the emotions that we feel don't, don't define us as a person? And that's my question. I think what um, the particular story and, and I'll come back to that. What the story is trying to point us towards is a notion of acknowledging our emotions, being in touch with them, being gracious towards them, without reducing the totality of who and what we are to those emotions that come and go. Think about the amount of energy that so many of us spent putting up walls to protect ourselves from vulnerabilities that we have. And those walls in some ways protect us, but in other ways they also keep us from being loved, being reached, being accessible. I think part of what Rumi in this case is just trying to get us to arrive at is an awareness that you are not only that emotion that you're experiencing at that time. That you're aware and generous, but also mindful that these emotions have their ebbs and flows, and that there's something in you that is more permanent, more long-lasting, perhaps even more divine. I think that's at least the start of it. Good evening. Hello. My name is Michael, and I have a question about the various labels that we assign ourselves, whether they be our religious um, beliefs, our ethnicity, our politics, or whatever. Are they hurdles that, that we need to uh, overcome to get intimate, or are they tools to help us express ourselves and our intimacy? Did everybody hear that question? Yes? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, by the way, uh, I, I always want to try to do, especially in the Q&A format, is I would really like for me not to be the all-knowing, all-wise uh, guru that has the answers that can fit into a minute and a half. And I can try to tell you that my own life is messy and complicated. And any answer that I can give you is sort of where I am in this breath now. Part of what I know about myself, and I hesitate to say that anybody else has to live based on what my own experiences have been, is to say that the more work I do on my own self, here's another cartoon reference that I hope will make sense to you, is that I'm like Shrek. 
And Shrek and Donkey have a conversation about each of us being like onions and having different layers, right? So I am, at all times, my mother and my father's son, the oldest sibling in a family of four children, a husband, a father, a teacher, occasional poet, a neighbor, a citizen, a human. And I'm all of those things at all times. I never stop being the baba, the daddy, to my eight and a half year old. But at the moment that I'm teaching my classes, uh, except for the fact that I may tell a story about her, that function of me isn't what's at the surface. I personally don't have room for casting off all the identities that make me human, because to cast them off would imply no longer being my mother's son, a proud American citizen who's consistently critical of his government, because <laughs> that's my job, damn it, as a citizen, someone that has profoundly deep and meaningful, what we call down south, roots <laughs> in Iran and Turkey, though I'm critical enough of those governments that I haven't been able to set foot in Iran for 16 years now. And I have no interest in a kind of humanism that would require for me to cast off those parts of my identity. I'm not sure what I look like without my Persian-ness, without my daddiness, without my understanding of what it means to be a friend and a lover. My humanity is the intersection of all of them. And what I search for in getting to know you is to similarly find out about your intersectionality rather than having an understanding of this mythical, ideal, cloud-type model of the human that's disconnected from everything else. That's as far as I've gotten in this breath. There's one more question back there. And then. Hi, Hello. I'm Gabby. Hi, um, thank you for being here. Um, I had a question. I really appreciated your insight about success not being linear and that we're going to fail consistently. And so I wanted to ask you, what does failing, look, failing better look like for you? And even in just the example you gave about acknowledging an email before playing with your daughter. You know, um, I think when we speak about success, oftentimes we imagine it in this very linear model, right? As if on top of those stairs is a successful experience. And success looks like you climb the stairs until you get to that point. And we were talking right before this um, session with a group of students and, and faculty about the fact that any time that any of us tell our own story, it's a little bit an exercise in fiction 
Because what we do is that we pick five or six moments in our own journey and we make this line that goes through all of them, which invariably leads us to who and what you are today. Part of failure for me is actually the fact that real life doesn't work like that. Things fall apart. Life isn't linear. It's got many detours, and the detours are also part of the journey, and the failings are part of the journey. And in the way that we speak about success in this teleological, linear climb to the mountaintop, we don't actually have a way to speak about one of the most beautiful and important qualities of being human, which for me is the bounce back. Um, little TMI department, I've had my heart broken completely eight times in my life. I wish I could tell you that I met the great love of my life when we were both 18. <laughs> the person that you are in love with when you're 18, chances are, will not be the great love of your life. Chances are. It wasn't just the crash and burn aspect of those beautiful, at times, love affairs. It was the bounce back. It was the, how do I not do the thing which comes most natural, which is, let me forget about her by finding someone who's exactly like her, or alternately, someone who's the complete opposite of her. Right? Those seem to be the two options that I could think of in my early 20s. Instead of saying, can I actually mourn? Can I actually give myself the time to say, I gave all of my heart and sometimes all of my body, all of my soul to this person? And it was lovely and beautiful and tormented and it ran its course and ended. Can I actually take the time to grieve the death, and I don't use that word too lightly, the death of some dreams that never came to fruition. Right? When you love someone so much that you actually imagine what your children might look like, and those children never come to be, and you mourn them. And then the next time that you enter a relationship, there's a you that has loved, has lost, has mourned, and inshallah, God willing, has also grown. Right? That's not a linear love story. That's not a romantic comedy where in the five minutes before the ending of the movie, Tom Cruise jogs through the rain invariably. Why do they always jog through the rain? Like where is that written in the rom-com comedy source book? The bounce back, the resilience, the mourning, the growing, the learning from and learning with, those are all parts of 
the non-linear sense of what a successful life looks like for me, which is not a linear one. Yeah. I think we've got one more over there. Yeah, um, hi, my name's Anna. Hi, Anna. Um, I'm a student. I was wondering, um, so in the end there you talked about finding this love of shared human experience and what that has to do with being involved in social justice movements. Um, I know for me, faith plays a huge part in finding those shared experiences. So I guess the question that remains is, do you think that faith communities are obligated to be politically and socially involved in these social justice movements? That's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, and if we can put aside for a second the arrogance and the hubris of me not only speaking for my own community and my own tradition, but for all faith communities and all traditions, um, I'll give you what my, where I stand in this breath on that question. So the first thing that I always uh, try to remind myself of is the real question to ask is not do we need less faith or more faith? Do we need faith-based social movements or non-faith-based social movements? The real question that I'm interested in, as a person of faith who is committed to liberation and love, is what kind of faith? Remember, the pharaoh had a religion and the slaves had a religion. The African human beings stolen from the west coast of Africa and lined up like sardines on slave ships had a religion. And the slave masters waiting for them in North and South America had a religion. What kind of religion? Is it a religion that says, for me to be truly human, you have to be equally fully human? Or is it a religious tradition that somehow rationalizes and legitimizes the supremacy of one group of human beings over another group of human beings, males over females, white people over non-white people, straight people over non-straight people, or any kind of an ethnically-based model of supremacy. The God that I have my own faith in abhors that kind of supremacy. If you take seriously the notion that we are all the children of God, then any supremacy is an abomination to that oneness. I can understand someone who wishes to support white supremacy, male supremacy, straight supremacy, or any other model of supremacy. What I cannot understand is how that person can also call themselves a follower of Jesus. I cannot understand how that person can claim to be a follower of Muhammad. I cannot understand how that person can also call themselves someone who follows the biblical Jewish prophets. 
because these are all traditions that speak out of the language you find in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 25. That which you do to the least of these, you do unto me. Right? If you want to find out where the moral health of any community is, don't pay attention to what their strong and powerful say. Look at how the people who at the moment find themselves weak and vulnerable are being treated. That is the barometer of the moral and religious health of that society. Right? By that reckoning, by the way, we as Americans are in a deep state of moral, ethical, and religious failing. 20% of our children live in poverty. 40% of our black, brown, and Native American children live in poverty. It's an abomination. Defend it however you want under your socioeconomic plan. Do not dare call yourself a Christian if you're silent in the face of this atrocity. Nothing more to add to that. Thank you for a, an evening of wisdom, beauty, and love. Uh, we're very grateful to have you with us tonight. Please, one more time, Professor Safi, and sign, get his books. Thank you.